So if we look at the book of Jonah, it's a, very, it's a familiar story to us, isn't it? We all know about Jonah and the fish. We grew up with it in Sunday school. But in, you'll see that this, the book of Jonah can be kind of broken into like seven scenes or seven episodes that go on. The first one we see in the first little bit of chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see the Lord commissions Jonah with a, with a message. Go out and call out against that great city Nineveh, for the evil has come up against me. He's commissioned and he's sent out. He's sent out with a purpose. But what does Jonah do? We know the story well. Rather than traveling to Nineveh inland, he goes up, jumps on a boat, and tries to sail across the Mediterranean as far away from Nineveh as possible. He has no desire to, to fulfill the, the Lord's calling on his life in this regard. So he, so he attempts to run from the presence of the Lord. Jonah knew better. He knew that the, he knew scripture. He knew the words of the psalmist that says, where can I hide from you? From your presence I cannot hide. So then we get into the second scene in verses 6, or uh, rather 4 through 16 of chapter 1. And here Jonah's on the boat. He's boarded the boat. He's there with these pagan sailors. But you know, Jonah has disregarded the call of God on his life. So now he's sitting on the boat, and he's crawled down into the hold, and he's found himself a comfy little spot, and he's sleeping. It's interesting he's sleeping physically, but he's really sleeping spiritually. He's He's ignored the way of the Lord. He's ignored a clear directive from the Lord, and he's sleeping spiritually. And what, what happens? We know what happens. The Lord hurls a storm out, right? And those, the seas get ugly and tempestuous. This, this, uh, I love the word tempestuous. It's just this has a spiritual connotation to the storm. And it gets worse and it gets worse. And the sailors, they start throwing their livelihood overboard. And finally, this captain, this sea captain who does not know the Lord, he's not a believer. He goes down to the prophet of, the, of God and says, wake up and pray. Jonah the prophet, the man of God, is exhorted to prayer from a pagan. He's called to the place of prayer by the unbelieving captain. We see what happens. He, he comes up, they draw, they draw lots, and the lots fall on Jonah as to why this storm has happened. And Jonah says, throw me overboard. And these men were, they had more compassion and pity for for Jonah than Jonah had for the city of Nineveh. These guys, they tried in, their, in their, all their strength to row to shore, to get through the storm, and finally they couldn't. So finally they, they, they finally tossed Jonah overboard. And we know what happens. The waters get calm, and the seas calm. And Jonah's ministry to the Gentiles, a, very min, a ministry he never dreamt would happen, begins. We see in verse 16 of chapter 1, that the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. His ministry to the Gentiles has started with the unlikely sailors. The third scene, we see Jonah now, he's been thrown in the water. If you, if you read the beginning of chapter two, you, you see this idea that Jonah's he's sinking to the depths of the sea. He's drowning. There's, there's words uh, uh, like being wrapped up in the ocean and engulfs him and seaweed wraps around his head. This idea that he's going down and drowning and the Lord appoints a rescue plan. The Lord has appointed a mighty fish. We don't know what it is, but it was big and it swallows him. And Jonah sits in this fish for three days. Now, chapter two is this prayer and it says that after three days he prayed. You know, I honestly believe he prayed a whole bunch, but I think when we got to the third day, his heart started to be touched. 
If you, if you read in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, it said, When my life was fainting away, this is Jonah's words, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard for vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We see this when Jonah humbled his heart. We see this incredible, I, I think it's a great pattern for prayer when, when we're in trouble. Remember the Lord. Confess our sins and our idolatrous ways. Offer thanksgiving for the goodness of the Lord. Commit to do what we've committed to do. Repenting and turning from our sin and recommitting and following the Lord and acknowledging where our salvation is found. Great, great template, so to speak, of coming to our Lord. When Jonah did that, when he humbled himself before the Lord in prayer, when his heart started to be touched, the Lord spoke to the fish, it says in verse 10 of chapter 2, and the Lord, and the, it vomited Jonah out on dry land. The end of scene 3, Jonah's prayed, his heart started to be changed. So scene 4, Scene four we see in the first few verses of chapter three. Jonah's recommissioned. You know, it's interesting. The Lord didn't change the commission. He said the same thing. Go out and, and, and call out against him. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time, Jonah arose. I guess he learned a little bit of a lesson that running from God is, gonna, is futile. He cannot run from the presence of the Lord. So he arose, and he delivered the message. The fourth scene. The fifth scene. Jonah delivers the message. He gets into Nineveh. I really, I honestly don't believe that he was an excited preacher. I think he was a bit of a grumpy preacher yet. Because he didn't like these Ninevites. They're his enemies. So he goes through and what does he preach? He preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not a message of grace. Not a message of love. Just a message of impending wrath and judgment. And what do the people do? We know the story. The people repent. They repented at the partial message of the gospel. They just heard the wrath. And on a who knows, they didn't know the promises of God. They didn't know the reality that God is faithful. On, it says that they said, who knows, God may relent. And they humbled themselves. And they turned from their sin. We know that their, that their turning was true. In Matthew 12, verse 41, the words of Jesus talking to the Pharisees, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the, pre at the preaching of Jonah, that partial message. And behold, something greater, Jesus, is here with them now, proving the reality. These guys, they had, they had a true experience with the Lord. They truly repented. You might remember the king came down off his throne. He came off his throne of privilege. He took off his garment that distinguished him as the king, and he went down and he put on sackcloth and ashes in repentance before the Lord. His heart was turned. And we see in verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I love the gracious nature of our Lord, eh? You know, when mankind humbles themselves before the Lord, the Lord relents of impending disaster. Really the message of, our, of the cross. So that's the end of scene five. 
We get to scene six, and we get to, we get to chapter four. Excuse me. So let's dive in. We're going to look at the heart of Jonah this morning. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. O Lord, oh, sorry. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? You know what's interesting? I think uh, uh, any time that any of us would have the opportunity to to share the good news of Jesus with someone, if one person responded, we'd be ecstatic. We know that scripture tells us that when one comes in into the kingdom that the angels rejoice in heaven. Any preacher would love to see a fraction of his hearers turn and repent. Jonah saw a city, a big city, repent. And what was his response? It displeased Jonah exceedingly. If you look at the footnote in your ESV, uh, it says it can also be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. I say, wow, how can this be? Success in ministry? Success in sharing the good news? And you see it as exceedingly evil? You know, I think we have to remember a little bit of the context of the time and the day and what Jonah was probably thinking. We have to remember that the Assyrians were the most brutal conquering force known to the face of the earth at that time. These guys were brutal. They were murderers. They were the arch nemesis enemy of Israel at the time. You know, these guys very likely may have raided Jonah's hometown, maybe some of his aunts, uncles, or cousins, or brothers, or sisters, Maybe his direct family had been killed or murdered by these guys. He had a deep hatred for these people. He really didn't believe they were worthy of being saved. So what did he do? He, we've seen that he ran when he was commissioned. So Jonah goes on. He says he's exceedingly upset. He's exceed, unhappy that the Lord has been gracious. You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think that the gracious nature of our Lord is one of the characteristics I love the most about the Lord because I don't deserve any of his goodness. I don't deserve his favor. I deserve that wrath and destruction that Jonah preached. I don't deserve it. But Jonah was angry at God's grace being extended to Nineveh. So he keeps on going in this angry prayer-ish rant to the Lord. In verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made uh, haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You know, um, Jonah rather, you know, we, we know he's a prophet. He knew the word of God. He knew how the Lord described himself. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it's when the Lord passes by Moses. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, the Lord, the Lord, 
gracious, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow. The nature of our God as he described himself. But he also says, by who no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That part is what Jonah wanted for Nineveh. He wanted these guys to be nuked. He, wanted, he did not want to see the grace extended. He just wanted to see the wrath of God extended. So in Jonah, we see this contrast. He wants grace and mercy for himself and for his people. He doesn't want to see grace and mercy and the goodness of God extended to those he doesn't like. He reminds me a little bit of how James describes in cha- chapter 1, verse 8, a double-minded man unstable in his ways. If we think about in, ver- in chapter 2, Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish when his heart started to be changed, and if we compare it to his prayer here in chapter 4, it's an interesting contrast. We know in chapter 2 he's in trouble. He's in trouble really of his own making. He ran from God. He got on that boat, got tossed overboard. Now he's in this belly of the fish, a rather unpleasant place. I can just imagine. Can you imagine the stomach acid and bits of fish guts and all these things? Unpleasant place. He's in trouble. And what did Jonah do? He begs the Lord for mercy. He says, I called out in my distress. In, in chapter 4, we see Jonah complaining when mercy is extended to those that he doesn't want it extended to. In the belly of the fish, what does Jonah do? He recommits his ways to the Lord. Essentially, he's saying to the Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. And in chapter 4, we get a lame excuse. He goes, well, you know, here's my excuse for why I ran. I knew you were going to be gracious to these guys. That's why I made haste and ran. Committing to do, making excuses for his fleeing. In the belly of the fish, what does Jonah say about idols and idolatry? What does he say? He's, he, he condemns the idols in his life. And here in, in chapter 4, he's, really, he's, re, he's building this big idol back up. This idol of national pride, this idol of uh, that he was the prophet to the chosen people, that God's salvation was only to him and his people. He built this up. The idea that grace and salvation is a secret only for Israel and that. In the fish, Jonah acknowledged where salvation is found. Who ultimately is the giver of salvation? He says, salvation is the Lord's. Now we see Jonah's angry that God would dare give his salvation to others. You know what? Jonah thought he was going to die when he fell into the water, thrown into the water. Now he's in the belly of the fish. And what does he say to the Lord? Save my life. Save my life. What does he say in chapter 4? He says, take my life. Take me out. I can't stand your mercy when I can't control it, so just take me out. You know, when Jonah was in the fish, he prayed submissively before the Lord. 
And here he's praying with angry resistance and excuses. You know, I, th- I think about, Jonah reminds me so much of my heart. How often do I only want good things for myself? How often do I bite my tongue because I'm maybe slightly uncomfortable to share? How often am I double-minded and unstable? You know, our God is faithful. Our God is true. I'm reminded of what he says, God, that God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to be like us. He's not going to be like Jonah. He's not going to change his mind. His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So the mindset of Jonah versus the mindset of God. The mindset of Jonah was well summed up by a man by the name of Jonathan Smith. He said, this is Jonah's mindset, we are God's chosen few. All others, they'll be damned. There's no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. What a mindset. When we read that God says that that he wishes that not one be lost, that all come to repentance. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jonah, kind of unstable, kind of like me, kind of probably like all of us. I thought it's interesting that he sits there and he, he, you know, he's kind of ranting before the Lord. He's, he's in a not a great spot. And what does he do? Well, when he's not right with the Lord, he says, well, Lord, Take me to your judgment seat right now while I'm mad at you. I find that kind of weird. I, I haven't fully resolved that thought. I, you know, I, I think Jonah was secure in his salvation, uh, and he recognized that he was secure in his salvation and figured that the judgment seat would be okay anyhow. Um, I guess I haven't got that fully resolved. But I do sort of understand a little bit of Jonah's mindset about this wanting to just die. You know, think about the story, and I don't know how much time has gone over spanned in this whole time, but he's got, phys- physically he's gone through the ringer. He's probably emotionally and spiritually drained. He's confused. He's probably not, he's not getting this idea that God extends his salvation to all. That's a big theme in this book, that God's salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for us all. He's, he's probably struggling with that. He's at his wit's end. He's dismayed. And you know what else? He can't go back to his home. I don't think. Can you imagine? You go and you bring good news. You save your enemies from destruction. Nowadays, if we are, let's say we're in a war situation, that would be like me finding out some vital information about a military operation, sneaking around across the border to my enemies and telling them in advance what's going on. I can't go back home now. I'm a traitor. I'd be strung up for treason. Can you imagine going back to your homeland and saying, I just preached the message of repentance to the Ninevites, and they all repented and are now serving the Lord, and the Lord's not going to destroy them. You mean those same Ninevites that brutally killed our family and wiped out our neighboring towns? I understand a little bit why he was at his wit's end. But you know, God is so gracious. I understand he was at his wit's end, and what does the Lord do with him? How does he respond to him? 
In verse 4, he, the Lord responds to this rant. You know, if it was me, I would not have responded as graciously as the Lord did. I would have started putting him in his place. You, you, you. What does the Lord say? He just asks a question. Do you do well to be angry? Someone's once translated as, is doing good displeasing you, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? There's something about being asked a question. Asking a question like this forces you to search your heart and respond. You know, the Lord loves to ask us questions. Here's a list. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you have done? Chapter 4 with Abel. Where's your brother? What have you done? Saul, when Samuel confronted him about the sacrifice, what have you done? And Matthew, when the mothers of Zebedee, of the sons of Zebedee came and said, came to Jesus, what did Jesus say? What do you want? When Judas came to betray him, he said, are you going to betray me with a kiss? And an axe, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When the Lord asks us questions, he searches our heart or causes us to search our heart to answer truly before him. It's easy to maybe spout something off. But when the Lord of creation asks you, why are you persecuting me? Or the Lord of creation says, why are you angry? You've been given a clear direct. You know, I, I mean, like I say, if I was God, I would have been, I gave you a clear directive. You got in this mess by yourself, the ship, the whale, all this stuff. That's your problem. It's your baby. I, w- I don't know if I would. I probably would have been accusing. And here the Lord says, what did you do? Causing him to look in his heart and, and be convicted of his sin himself. God's gentle response, a gracious God, compassionate, slow to anger. So verse 5 Jonah, we see Jonah didn't answer the Lord. It's actually kind of arrogant. He turned his back on the Lord when the Lord asked him a question. Let's read what he does. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. So he was still hoping that Though the Ninevites uh, repented that God was still going to destroy them. So he set up to the east of the city to watch. He made a booth. You know, when I, I think of what this booth may have been, I have this idea of this little ramshackle, I don't know. Um, you know, if you ever watch a movie and a sniper has a little thing, he builds a little shack, this little thing. That's how I envision this little ramshackle tent probably built out of some sticks. This isn't like a, you know, building a little cedar shack underneath big cedar bows that we have here. This is a desert situation. He scrounged up a little bit of wood. Maybe he found some palm branches on the way and make a cover over himself. You know, uh, one commentator made this observation. He said, 
Jonah, he walked out of the valley of God's will, which was where he was called Nineveh. He walked up the hill of his pride and built a shelter of his self-reliance. Stubborn heart, an insufficient shelter. Because we see that the Lord still had to do some work to help him out here. We get to verse 6, and we see how futile the shelter was. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that he might, uh, might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So maybe after a day or so, these palm branches, we know what happens. They get dry. They're in the hot sun. Pretty soon they start wrestling and falling off and bits fall off. And guess what? He doesn't have any shade anymore. It's interesting that in his disobedience, the Lord is still being gracious to him. The Lord is raising up a comfort over him. He raises up this tree. Verse 6, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Now there's different ideas of what this plant may have been. In your ESV, you'll see if you look at the footnote, it'll say that it was likely a castor oil tree. Um, if you're reading the old King James, they'll call it a gourd. Either way, a castor oil tree, I, I looked it up, they're actually quite beautiful. They've got... Um, big leaves on them, the kind of pointy leaves. Um, and they can grow up to be a small tree, uh, particularly in the Mediterranean they can. Uh, if it was a gourd, we know it's more like a vine. So the idea is, is that it's something that creates nice shade. If it's a vine, it probably grew up over his little booth, over his little tent, and created that nice cool that we get when we're under, when we're under a plant. You know, we all know that there's something about being under the shade of a tree or under the shade of an of a arbor with vines on it. So the Lord raises up a comfort. But it's interesting. Look what Jonah says at the end of verse 6. Uh, end of verse six. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. There's no mention that Jonah was thankful for the comfort. There's no mention that Jonah would thank the Lord for saving him from the scorching sun. Not a hint of a mention of it. You know, Jonah knew scripture. He understood that his joy was to be found in the Lord. The psalmist says in Psalm 43, Then I will go to the altar of the Lord, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O Lord my God. He never thanked the Lord for this thing. I think the Lord was trying to touch him just with grace to touch his heart. Say, Jonah, will you thank me? Will you be thankful for my graciousness to you? Or do I have to carry on with this object lesson? And we see Jonah needed to have the object lesson carried on. Spurgeon said this about the gourd or the tree. Do not let your gourd become your God, but let your gourd or comfort or tree lead you to your God. When our comforts become our idols, they work our ruin. When they make us, but when they make us bless God for them, they become messengers from God, which help towards our growth in grace. Wow. Our comfort should drive us to the Lord rather than becoming idols. So we carry on in verse 7. We see God ramp up the object lesson. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, so now the heat of the day, it's getting hot. This 
the sun's baking down on his head. It's this Middle Eastern sun. You know, he's probably in a desert place. You can just imagine how it is. And what does the Lord do? He appoints a scorching east wind. Not just a breeze, not a cool breeze, a smoking hot wind off the desert. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die. And again he said, it is better for me to die than live. You know, Jonah's attitude really should have been like the attitude of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, yet I will praise the name of the Lord. But it's not. He wants to die again. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Earlier he was angry that the Lord had not, had not done what he wanted to his enemies. Now the Lord caused this plant. It's, it, says, <clears throat> it says here, that what does the Lord say? You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in the night and perished in a night. There's, Jonah could, have, could obviously see the miraculous nature of this plant. This thing grew up in one night and caused shade. The next night, it was done. It was of no use. And Jonah pitied the plant. He had compassion for the plant. The Lord carries on with this and he says, And I should not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons that do not know their left hand from their right hand and much cattle. I find it interesting. God completes his object lesson and he says to Jonah, I can just imagine this coming like a ton of bricks on him. When the Lord finally reveals the, the true character of Jonah's heart, he reveals that Jonah cares more about his shade than he does about many people. The Lord appeals to his um, nature of children. I mean, if you hate, you might hate a people group. You might hate the adults and the parents and what has been done. But the little children that do not can't yet differentiate from left to right. He reminded Jonah he didn't even have compassion for children. The Lord even says also much cattle. You know, if we go back to um, the, the destruction that was going to come upon uh, uh, Nineveh is the same wording that's used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire, brimstone, smoke, sulfur. Brutal, brutal. Any living thing going through that kind of destruction would have been absolutely tortured. The Lord says, you know, you don't care about the kids. You don't even care about the animals that are going to die horrendously. He, touched, he grabs his heart. It must have just absolutely hit him. It sure makes me think about what the condition and state of my heart is. What comfort has the Lord provided in my life that I have not thanked him for? What comfort has the Lord provided in my life that I've turned into an idol? Where have I walked out of the valley of God's will and his directive? and gone up the barren hillside of my pride and built myself an insufficient shelter with my own hands. I don't know what it is for you, 
and I'm wrestling through what song it is for me. I, I got to say, looking at Jonah, I wasn't entirely comfortable this past week. I had to look at my own heart. I had to ask the question, do I do well to be angry? Do I do well? Do I do well to be angry for the plant? Do I do well to be angry for my work? Do I do well to be angry for blank? You know, my, the Lord provides provisions in our lives. I know in my life, the Lord has given me the ability to work with my hands. And, you know, some of you here may know that some days I get really frustrated with my workplace and my work situation. I was thinking about this scripture this week, and I thought, you know what? That ability to work with my hands, what God has given me is a comfort and a provision. I have to ask myself, have I allowed the skill set that the Lord's given me to become an idol that I can do it on my own. I can, with my hands, I can support my family. With my hands, I can do this. Or do I say, thank you, Lord, for giving me the skill and the ability to work with my hands. The skill and the ability to put food on the table. Where's my heart? In my quiet time this week, <clears throat> Excuse me. I, um, I was reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where it says uh, in the last half of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the Spirit of, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things God has freely given us. You know, I was thinking about Jonah, meditating on this passage, and this verse from my quiet time just kept on jumping out. I wonder when I feel that I'm from, distant from the Lord, that I'm coming to his word, I'm not comprehending. I'm struggling in what the will of God is. start asking myself, what idol have I built up that I've pushed the Spirit of the Lord into the back corner of the closet? Close the door and no longer hear his voice. You know, we serve a jealous God. He's jealous for our hearts. He's jealous for our full devotion. He's jealous for our obedience. He wants us to be comprehend and know and understand his voice. That's why he gave us his spirit. I think when we have a thankful heart for what the Lord has given us, we come in the spirit of thanksgiving and start opening the door back on that closet that we've pushed the Lord into in our hearts and open it wide open again and say, come out again. Search my heart, root out any bitterness, root out my bad attitudes. Replace them with your spirit, Lord, so I may know, understand, and comprehend your will. That's been my prayer for myself in this looking at Jonah. 
is that those things in my life that I crowd the Lord out, that I'd open them back up. I think this chapter, you know, people sometimes will talk about the sovereignty of God. Yeah, it's there. The Lord appointed many things. Absolutely. I think the heart of this chapter is the heart of the prophet and the Lord teaching him a lesson. I know that I don't necessarily like tough object lessons. My prayer is that I would, the Lord would reveal and help me take down idols before he needs to teach me tough lessons, things that hurt. Maybe I need them to hurt sometimes. Maybe some of our tough things in life is object lessons from the Lord. We have to search our heart and ask the Lord, is this an object lesson? You know what Jewish tradition says about Jonah? Jewish tradition says that after the Lord said this, it's not recorded in our Bible, but after the Lord left Jonah with this question, that Jonah fell on his face and said, God, govern your world according to your mercy and grace. Some people think that Jonah went back into Nineveh, back out of, out of that shelter of flesh, back down the hill of his pride, back into the valley where God called him to serve and minister and teach these new baby believers the things of the Lord. He probably wasn't welcome back in Israel. I honestly believe that Jonah probably lived out his days in Nineveh, serving the Lord, training up people there. So I ask, so we ask ourselves, what do we take away from the book of Jonah? For me, it's where's my heart? Where's my heart? God has pity and compassion for the lost. Do I have pity and compassion for the lost? Am I ashamed of the gospel? In Romans, it tells us that I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Am I practically ashamed of the gospel? We often pray, Lord, the fields are white unto harvest, send send harvest workers. I have to ask myself in my heart, has my idol of pride caused me not to be the harvest worker that God's called me to be? You know, I, I love the character of God. I love that he's gracious. I love that he's compassionate. I love that he has pity on the lost. We see that in verse 11. We see that God, he doesn't care about the plant so much. He cares about souls. That's the heart of God. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. That's Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. You know, we say, Hosanna, save me now. It's Palm Sunday. I don't really have a Palm Sunday message, I don't think, but it's Palm Sunday, and we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. And the people saying, save me now. They wanted their idea of save me now was build up a kingdom, build up a physical kingdom. But God had other plans. The comfort wasn't what they expected it to be. The comfort actually was that Jesus died for their sins and they couldn't comprehend it. But our comfort that will never be taken away, that will never be torn down, is Jesus Christ. 
You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the message in Jonah is this, that Jesus cares about your soul. He cares about your soul more than he cares about a plant. He cares about your soul more than he cares about an animal. He cares about your soul more than he cares about the pro- um, his prophet's disobedience. He's going to teach his prophet a lesson to remind him how much he cares about your soul. Jesus came to come and save the lost. In, in John 10.10, 10, he says, I have come that may have life and have it to the full. John 3.16, he says, that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whomever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans 10, he tells us that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved for us with our, with our hearts that we believe and are justified and with our mouths that we confess and are saved. If you don't know Jesus this morning, my prayer is that you would Ask him to come into your life. In John chapter 1, it says, To all who received him, to all who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God. The right to full inheritance and full life. We've seen in Jonah chapter 3, we've seen the Ninevites, they, they responded to the message. They repented. And Jesus confirmed that they were saved because they will stand up at the last day. It's the same thing. Jesus, God is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Turn your heart to Christ. As we come into Easter, we celebrate his death for our sins and his resurrection, overcoming death in the grave. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would touch our hearts pray that you would convict our hearts in regards to sin and righteousness, the judgment to come, the idolatry in our hearts and our lives, Father. I thank you that you're good. I thank you that you love us, Father, that you wish that not one be lost. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that you would just touch their hearts, Lord. I pray that you would soften their hearts to your good news, Father. If you don't know Jesus and you want to know him this morning, I just pray with, pray with us all. Say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm not perfect. I'm, not, I'm a sinner. I, I don't deserve any of your goodness, Father. But your word says that you saved me, not because of the righteous things that I have done, but because of your mercy. Please come into my heart and change me. Restore, renew me, give me eternal life. In precious name I pray.